0: the intersection of interesting and computable.
1: Data Stories is supported by Tableau Software, helping people see and understand their data. Get answers from interactive dashboards wherever you go. For your free trial, visit Tableau Software at tableau.com slash datastories. That's tablea dot com slash datastories.
2: Hi everyone! Data stories number 54. I'm Moritz. How's it going? Hey, Enrico. How are you? I'm good. Summer is here. Cool. Feels much better. And uh, yeah, teaching is over. Now I can do some oh, work. Very
1: nice. <laughs> it feels really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've just Ryan seen note. you've been a week to it uh, to Israel, right?
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. my God, Israel was amazing. I've never been cool. there before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was invited for a talk at this um, small conference called is Viz, Israel Viz. And uh, is Viz. <laughs> it's good. the first time. <laughs> it's the first edition. Very interesting. A lot of different people with very different backgrounds. And um, yeah, I loved it. And I loved uh, going around. The country is amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I've been to the Dead Sea, to Jerusalem, cool. Tel Aviv. Beautiful. Cool. Very good. Beautiful. Yeah. I hope they do it again. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they can invite me again, <laughs> but maybe do they can invite wrong? you. <laughs> Probably, yes, as usual. <laughs> Very good. And you? Good.
1: Uh, I had a little bee emergency today, so oh. you know I'm keeping bees, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, and um, so this is the time of the year when they when they decide to swarm sometimes. That means mm-hmm. f- a big part of them flies off to a new place. And wow. I was taking a little walk today and I just so saw you have to catch them? them gather already, like outside one of the hives. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I need to get them. And so I put them in, into a bucket and gave them a new temporary home. And now when the call is finished, I need to go outside and check if they're still there because they might be like, yeah, we don't like that. We go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Nice. Yeah, nice. that's my exciting
2: news. <laughs> Okay, so um, we have another special guest today. We have Mariah Meyer from University of Utah. Hi, Mariah.
0: Hey, guys. Hey, Mariah. How are you?
2: We are excited to have you here.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm super excited to be on the show.
2: So we want uh, to talk uh, a little bit about all your work, but specifically about how to build uh, visualization tools for scientists and researchers. And what's the right way of doing that? I know you you publish quite a lot of work on the topic, so um, can you briefly introduce yourself? Introduce yourself so that our listeners know a little bit about yourself. What's your background? What you are doing in your research, et cetera, sure. et Sure.
0: Sure. So um, my background is very much rooted in a, a passion for science. I, I was always I always loved science and um, looking up at the stars with my dad, and I ended up. Um, being an astronomy major as an undergrad, large part because it seemed like a really interesting way to study math and physics. Um, but around the time that I was um, getting ready to graduate, I realized that I couldn't really imagine observing one wavelength of light for the rest of my life. Um, but I really enjoyed building and making things. And so um, I was sort of exploring for a while and finally discovered computer science. And then I took a graphics and visualization course with Hans-Peter Pfister long time ago, way back before his Harvard days. Nice. And uh, I really fell in love with the idea that in visualization, you can be involved with science, but by building things instead. And so that's what prompted me to go to grad school for computer science. And so um, that's what I did, and then um, after I finished up, I did a postdoc actually back with Hans Peter um, at his lab in Harvard, and I, I sort of used that as a as an opportunity to explore a bit and to try to really figure out what is it that I, I'm really really passionate about. And that's when I started meeting a bunch of biologists in Boston and started seeing the kinds of tools they were using and realized that there was a huge opportunity uh, to uh, <laughs> do something better. Um, and so I started really exploring this idea of developing custom tools for small groups of people um, and just sort of fell in love with that whole approach and the idea of getting to work with these amazing domain experts and learn about the cool stuff they were doing. And uh, it was relatively successful because I ended up with a job after, um, which is what brought me out here to Salt Lake City.
2: <laughs> nice. So can you describe a little bit what kind of tools you you built for, for scientists and how this, this works? <laughs> just just sure. a, a couple of examples so that people get an understanding of what it means to build visualization tools for scientists?
0: Yeah, so I think sorry so if I
2: interrupt you. I think there are yeah. lots of people, especially those who are listening to this podcast, that um, see visualization mostly as a, as a communication tool and as a way, the same way it's used in newspapers or um, I don't know, by designers in general, there are lots of amazing examples, but um, I have a hunch that people are much less exposed to interactive visualization tools whose main purpose is to support exploratory data analysis, discovery, understanding, and all the rest.
0: <laughs> yeah, so right. So the, the kinds of tools that, that I really focus on are the ones that are to help scientists answer their sort of basic questions and to really do this idea of a visual data analysis. And so most of these collaborations, um, they oftentimes start from the same place, which is some sort of, you know, scientists, let's take biologists, who have just spent, you know, three or four years painstakingly in the lab collecting data. And now they're like, I have a whole bunch of data and I know there's something interesting in it. Can you visualize it? Turns out that that's not a very useful place to start, um, but I, I guess we can get into that later. Um, but so so what I do is I spend a lot of time working with these scientists to really try to understand what are the kinds of questions that they have and how do we translate that into questions that we can, as computer scientists, that we can develop an interactive visual tool to help them understand. And, and I also, I think one of the things that makes these tools, um, well, there's many things that make these kinds of tools different from a communication tool. But I think one of them is that um, so much of the information that's required for a scientist to answer a question is very domain-specific, and it's a lot of information that they just have in their head, things that they've spent many, many years studying and building up an intuition about. So I very much see these tools as sort of as providing a blank canvas, that this canvas that just contains some patterns that the scientists can then look at and bring to bear all that domain knowledge in order to really understand um whatever it is that they're they're trying to study so the, yeah th- these tools are supposed to be very open-ended very exploratory they're not supposed to be taking any specific stance or perspective but really trying to be this very open um blank page for scientists to bring their own knowledge to bear
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: how, how so, specific um, are these tools is it like useful to our- Ten people in the world, or one hundred, or one thousand? Like, what? What's the? <laughs> th- how generic or how specific are they? In, in, typically, like the ones you've been uh, working on.
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. <clears throat> one as a computer scientist, I I kind of struggle with a little bit. Um, <laughs> but in large part, what what I like to do is I like to develop tools for. Um, some, in in the case of science, would be like one lab. So for example, one of the projects that I've worked on um, was working with a group that studied fruit flies. And in that lab, there was about six people. Mm -hmm. And this lab was collecting data of a type that there was only one other lab in the world that was (laughs) even collecting this data. So in that regard, it's a pretty, pretty small user group. Um, And I think that this is really important for being able to ground our visualization exploration and design in um, very specific tasks that we can then validate against, um, but also to know that, you know, we're designing things for real problems. And what I've found over the years is that when you start to step back and reflect from these projects, that there's many things that do generalize that come out Mm -hmm. of these. Um, sometimes it's, you know, you'll develop a new visualization technique for a specific kind of data, but then later you're like, Oh, there's this totally different kind of problem that has the same kind of structure and form oh, I could use this or some variation of that. Um, or in the case of, of, the, of my sort of own, you know, things, what I'm really interested in is the idea of methodology and process. And so I, I oftentimes see these design studies as kind of a data-driven approach to understanding, to better understanding how do we do visualization, how, how, do, how do we do the visualization process itself. And so I'll reflect on many of these mm-hmm. in order to see things that bubble up as salient and generalizable. But the short answer is oftentimes, most often it's it's 10 or fewer. Mm-hmm.
1: That's great. It's, I think it's so, so cool that these projects exist at all, because I think quite often people yeah. assume it needs to be usable in such a wide range of settings, especially computer scientists, you know, usually strive right. for solutions that are so widely applicable that from my designer's perspective... A lot is lost, you know, all the the benefit that can come from a really to-the-point bespoke uh, design.
0: Right, yeah, and and I have to say, I think, you know, I I, I do have the luxury of being able to pursue this style of research in part because of the kind of job I have. So, you know, I'm I'm pretty fortunate that I I get to do that. But I think that these things do generalize and you can reach a wider audience over time. Mm
2: So Mariah in your experience why so you've been working with quite a few different scientists especially in biology and, and in biology I know as a matter of fact that there are lots of existing visualization tools that people use in the lab and so why these tools are not so why do they need specific tools if Uh, general-purpose tools exist. Like, for instance, I know Spotfire is very much used in in biology, biochemistry, drug discovery, for instance. So Mm -hmm. in in your experience, why they just cannot use them? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I I think that's a really interesting question. Um, When I first started talking with biologists at the beginning of my postdoc, I mean, that was the thing. It was like there's all these like great you know, tools. There's many, many different software tools and visualization tools that have been designed for the bio community. But what these biologists, I kept hearing them tell me over and over again is that, sure, they could load their data into these general purpose tools, but that these tools were never answering their very specific questions. And so I sort of liken this to this notion of long tail science, mm-hmm. where um, at the big part yeah. of the tail, you have 80% of the questions that 80% of the people want to ask. And as you go out on the tail, it's those long tail specific questions that separate one biology lab from the other. And so if, if they don't have tools that help them answer their very specific questions, it's really hard for them to be able to do something different from the lab down the hall or the lab at the neighboring university. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's, where, that's, why I've been, that's why I've been excited to focus more on that long tail side. Um and uh the the biologists I've worked with by and large have been have been very excited and very receptive to this. And and the tools that I've developed um, really have uh enabled my collaborators to answer questions that they really couldn't have done with the more general purpose tools. But with that said, um I think part of at least part of my own design process is the first step is oftentimes to throw their data into whatever we can, something like Tableau, <laughs> something like Spotfire, just for yeah. you know for two reasons. One is for, for um, well, largely for us as the visualization designers to start to understand a little bit more about their questions and about their data, but also I think to, to double-check that one of these general-purpose tools wouldn't just do the trick because we oh, yeah. don't want to reinvent the wheel. Yeah,
2: that's so important, <laughs> yeah. It's exactly the same for me. And I know that, that Moritz as well uses tableau all the time at the beginning of each project. Yeah. Yeah, That and of course, you don't want to reinvent the wheel, right? We are much more interested in cases where we don't know that there's nothing available out there. Uh, but do you think that there is any long-term solution to that? Or we will always be in a situation where very specific tools are needed and a visualization designer is needed to pair up with a scientist to solve this specific problem? Or is a solution, for instance, to make scientists more um, I don't know. Train these scientists in doing what we would do for them. Uh, wh- what is the solution there?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Enrico, I imagine you have your own opinions on this. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I think. I, I I think what I would what I imagine happening is yes. I think that there will always be a need for very specific custom visualizations. Um, but no, I don't. Well, and yes, I I hope there's always a place in the world for people like us.
2: We we would be (laughs) needed for a while. I
0: I feel like one of the big barriers is the fact that it's really hard to, to make a multiple view custom visualization tool. That inherently requires programming and lots of tedious programming. If you look at some of the, the, the trends with things like D3 and processing, mm. you know, I think we're doing a really great job of creating these high-level languages for creating a single view. Um, in my own experience, where programming gets really complicated is when I have multiple oh, yeah. views linked Absolutely. together in the interaction, yeah. your code just your code becomes a nightmare, it's right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I think there's some really interesting questions around how can we make that process easier so that someone like a biologist or you know a designer, um can create these, these sort of richer and more sophisticated tools, but without, you know, being a software engineer. Mm-hmm. However, I, I do think that there, that there's this really specific view that, that we as, as visualization practitioners and as computer scientists take on the data that is very different than what most people who are entrenched in their own domain will think of, you know, I think we're trained to think of things very abstractly and generally. And I, I find that in the collaborations I have, even just the conversations I have of me trying to understand their data and their mental models and putting it into my own framework, sometimes that can bring a lot to, to light for them because you oh, know, we're yeah. bringing in this new perspective. Mm-hmm. And so... I, you know, I, I don't think that people like us are ever really going to go away. However, I think it could be more of this this sort of emerging field of data science that once visualization and human-computer interaction become a, more common within that community, I can see if we had easier-to-use tools that that could really emerge as you know sort of this necessary collaboration with scientists.
2: Yeah. I think what is really challenging is to is to acquire all these necessary skills because they come from very different very different areas, right? So how, how do right. you how do you get this knowledge? Because you need a, probably some computer science, you need to understand some statistics and, and a little bit of science. But also have interpersonal skills, be be able to to talk to people, which is which is pretty hard, right? <laughs> Especially when you're talking to a biologist. Yeah. <laughs> I had some interesting experiences in the past, and uh, and you have to uh, you have to know a little bit of a uh, you have to have a little bit of a design touch because I've seen a lot of really ugly interfaces. And mm-hmm. ugly interfaces don't work <laughs> right mm-hmm. so uh, how do you get to that I'm sure that some of our listeners want to, to uh, want to know how, how do I actually learn <laughs> how do I become one of that right and it's it's hard because there's no single uh, trace or path right it, correct
0: I totally agree and, and you know I should I, preference I, I'm coming to this obviously from a very computer science. Perspective, so like more as you know, I, I'm sure that your experience and and many of the people like you, it would be very different. But um, I think within computer science, and I know even you know within my department here, we're having a lot of these conversations around the fact that traditional computer science doesn't necessarily train people to do this kind of work. Um, I, I had this very interesting experience this semester where I was teaching my first large undergrad class. It was our second <laughs> semester intro to data structures and algorithms course. And, as I was teaching it, I was thinking to myself, "Gosh, if I had to go through this program as an undergrad, I don't think I'd be a computer scientist <laughs> and that really but you know, and that really bothers me right because i you know oh, I'm in an yeah, department yeah, yeah. thats and and so I think that I think that there's many people who um don't have what we consider the the traditional set of computer science or engineering skills that would do so well doing the kind of work we do, you know, I don't think you have to be a, an amazing programmer or, you know, know a lot about, you know, uh, computing theory to do what we do really well. And in fact, you know, I'd argue that that there's so many things you have to learn to do that, you know, you can only pick and choose. And so um, I'm really interested, so, you know, in an educational way and, and how we can open up computer science to maybe embrace a broader set of, um, of skills and of experiences and how can we bring things like design thinking and design process into um, how we teach students and train them and also, you know, get them excited about what we do. Um, How can we bring people that are really curious and engaged and and do have these social skills and learn how to talk to each other? Um, (laughs) I I think all these things are really important from an education perspective. And I'd like to think that computer science going forward is going to be broader than it currently is. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I yeah. mean, a lot of it is really learning how to run a project, right? Like how to define a problem and how to approach potential solutions, how to try them out, how to evaluate them. And, th- of course, yeah, you don't lo- learn that at university necessarily. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you you uh, did a lot of projects and you also documented a bit of the design approaches that worked and that didn't work or that maybe were recurring patterns in Across all the projects you observed. So is there um, like a distilled version of an ideal project workflow you can describe? Or is there something like a guideline you can give to people who don't know how to tackle a design solution?
0: I, I think for me the short answer is to find people to, to find a variety of people to work with on a team. So so when I was f- first started doing this work in my postdoc, um, I had a very close collaborator who was a designer and medical illustrator by training. And working nice. with him alongside of some of the the scientists who were very much engaged with what we were doing was probably like the most impactful thing that's happened to me in a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. saw how he worked and likewise, he also, um, I think, was very interested in the, the structure that I as an engineer would bring to bear on the problem. And so For me, the key is really to find a good group of varied people um, to work with. Uh, Barring that, um, read our design study methodology paper. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a kind of cop-out answer, Mm -hmm. but um, I think surrounding yourself with as many interesting and different people as you can to tackle a problem, is, for me, has worked really well. Mm -hmm. And it's not always easy. Um, I, I... The way that I met this designer, his name is Bang Wong, and he works at the Broad Institute, was actually because at the time they had uh, the Broad Institute, which is a large uh, biology center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at the time they had this artist in residence named Daniel Cohn. And Daniel was really interested in visualization, you know, this, as this word is very broadly construed. And so he, he, Daniel was just a connector. And so he just brought together people from MIT and from Harvard and from different places around Boston, people with incredibly varied backgrounds. I mean, there was like me. I was like the most visualization kind of visual, visual person there. But there was people <laughs> from the media lab. There was some biologists who were interested. There was artists like Daniel. And he just brought us together to like think about crazy – Ways to imagine that we could turn genomics data into visual things. He talked about three D windows and all kinds of stuff. That at the time I was just like, "Oh my gosh, this is not going anywhere." <laughs> what is he talking about? Mm-hmm. But I think that experience of being confronted with this very different view of the world, this very different perspective, and trying very hard to put myself in his shoes and understand where he was coming from, I, I think that I think I grew a lot in that and in, in through those experiences.
2: Mm-hmm. So can you tell us? Uh, so you mentioned a little bit of your design study methodology. Can you can you describe more in details what what it's about? <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. Um, so this was this was um, a project with Tamara Munzner and Michael Settlemire, and we just we just got to the point where, as a group, we had done um, we had done I don't know twenty some design studies, and we felt like. There was probably something that we could reflect on, and put into words to to help provide some guidance to other people who want to do this kind of work. And so the result of it was was a, a framework um, that broke up the process into multiple steps. And I think for me the most the most important parts of that framework are the fact that there's these three stages. the first stage is all the stuff you have to do before you start a project. And here it's it's recognizing that you need to learn about the space of, of visualization techniques and methods because if, if you only know about a node link diagram, you're going to be pretty limited in how you can, say, visualize a graph, for example. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to, to get that breadth of, of knowledge. Um, and also, how do you find good collaborators and make sure you're talking to the right people? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the sort of middle, the middle part of the framework is this very iterative design process where you go and you talk to people, you try to understand what they're doing, you do some prototyping, you get feedback, and and you and you sort of work your way towards a final tool. And then the end of it is this reflection um, stage where I think this is what's really important for giving back to the visualization community is reflecting and saying, well, what's generalizable about what I've just done. Mm-hmm. And so that that at a high level is what the methodology is about.
1: And a design study is is this the actual project, or is the design study the documentation of the actual project? Like uh, I'm just not clear about it. Like, the like word. a case study. Yeah. yeah.
0: So so the way that we we define design study um, in, in our paper on this is that it's a project that tackles a real world problem. So it requires talking to real people and having real data. Um, where you design a solution so you you try a lot of different ideas Mm -hmm. um, and you window those down to a final tool that you deploy out into the wild um, and then go and get feedback and and understand how effective has your solution been are there things I can improve on and things like that. Mm -hmm. So so it's this very problem driven um, approach to a specific
2: project. So at the beginning you said that you need to understand what is a good collaborator. What is a bad collaborator?
0: <laughs> I'm
2: sure you had some. I had, I had quite uh, a few. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. You know, this is where I feel really fortunate that there's way more people that want to collaborate with people like us <laughs> than there are people like us. So we can really pick and choose. Um, yeah. I think one of the first classes of, of collaborators that probably won't work out are the people who just view us as a software developer, you know her like well i have this really really awesome interesting data and i just need you to implement an interactive right. heat map for me that does blah that, blah 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 yeah.
2: blah yeah. everyone so, has I this mean, problem
0: yeah yeah it's like finding you know it, it's for people who can't who 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 aren't willing to um get to the point where they understand what visualization research is and, and even just the visualization design process and that uh even though they're the domain expert, that we are experts in something different. Um, so for me, that's always like the first red flag. Um, and there's lots of other like red flags. So one of the the absolute requirements for a design study, for me, is that you have to have real you have to have real data. It can't be mm-hmm. sort of the promise of real data. With mm-hmm. that said, I've had some recent projects. Um, I had one project recently with a student working with Army Research Lab where the data was confidential um, mm-hmm. and uh, are classified and so we had to think a lot about well what does that mean mm. for does that mean we just can't do a design study and, and that wasn't really you know we weren't going to accept that as an option and so um, we you know we sort of developed some strategies for how we could could work with the the sort of toy test data that they gave us um, and questions that we needed to make sure we could answer and under, in order to understand the scalability of the data, where the problems would be. Um, and so anyway, so, so um, yeah, so we developed some strategies for how to to deal with that. So I wouldn't say you absolutely can't have real data, but if you don't, you need to really understand what's going to be different mm-hmm. about the, the real data. Um, so those are some of the things that, you know, we always look out for. And then honestly, design studies, I think, take so much time in interacting with those collaborators is that you have to, um you have to like them
2: <laughs> yeah you have to be so really I, I
0: work
1: careful with, that's yeah. a good I work tip too like first <laughs> you really have to make like sure you get along on a personal level before you start yeah. anything substantial together that's i mean
0: honestly like for me yeah. more oftentimes more important than the the actual space of the problem itself is do i want to work with this person right. and if so then we'll find something
2: yeah. yeah 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 that's a good point data stories is supported by tableau software helping people see and understand their data. Tableau lets people connect to any kind of data and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, and even big data sources are easily combined into interactive visualizations, reports, and dashboards. And
1: by now, there's a new version out, so the latest version is Tableau 9. And in Tableau 9, you'll find features that makes the product smarter about what you're doing, from a new start experience with data prep tools, to more analytics features and smart maps, for instance, with geographic search. So you can just type in the name of a city, directly go there. Um, Really nice. Uh, Across the entire analytical flow, uh, they have invested heavily in performance, and so everything's much faster now, and there's new features to help you share your findings and also collaborate with data. Uh, The thing I really like the most is the new data import tool, because you can finally split individual columns by delimiters and also pivot directly uh, a data table. So what you know from Excel, the pivot function is now directly into data import, and that saves so much time. So I'm,
2: I'm a big fan of that. Great. So if you want a free trial, visit Tableau Software at tableau.com slash datastories. This is T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash datastories. That's right. Now back to the interview. Here's
1: another thing. So I work a bit with scientists too, and there's a couple of problems I keep running into, probably from another angle because I'm more perceived as the designer, of course. Uh, but one, one recurring problem is this thing that there's a lot of trust in default visualizations or in um, learned idioms. And there's a big fear of receiving just bad reviews for non-standard graphics. Like, you know, so each scientific field I have encountered has a standard way of <laughs> plotting a certain data set. Usually, it's bad, it's like jet color palette from matlab and like 3d <laughs> manifolds yeah yeah i totally get it and how do you do you have a technique for i don't know for for getting getting people to a point where they accept that innovation is well can be can be helpful in that area or how, how do you deal with that problem have you encountered it or how do you deal with it
0: yeah, I had a I had one project. Again, this is going back to this fruit fly project where um the lab I was working with, the the we we developed a tool, published a paper, and then they went off and did their analysis. And so then when they were publishing their their scientific paper. One of the co-authors was this guy named Michael Eisen, who is sort of known as like the the father of the of the heat map within biology <laughs> within the biology community. And and in this tool, what we had what we had eventually done is gone away from a heat map for looking at this this gene expression data that's almost always shown a heat map uh-huh, right. to doing these like little curves and stuff. And so. Um, so I remember that the the PI I was working with when, when she was creating the figures, she wanted to use these curves instead. And she told me later that she was really nervous when she <laughs> showed the diagrams to, to Michael Eisen. Mm-hmm and and he was just like oh yeah this is clearly the way to show yeah. it. And so for me this was like this huge like this was just such a, a huge success. I was so excited. Yeah. Um, but but with that project it was really interesting because the the first prototype that I created for them for looking at this data was to use heat maps just like they were doing using the rainbow color map, you know, all these things that we as visualization designers know are not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> and so what I found and not just in that project but many projects is that is that I don't just dump on them the, these brand new, totally yeah. out of the blue visualizations, but it's like this slow transitional process mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. they slowly build up trust. You change little things at a time. So like with these heat maps, for example, the first thing I did was I added these little overlay curves on the side where she was like, oh, yeah, that's really great because you can see trends. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, we're doing color encoding for one and and positional encoding for another. What if we just change this color encoding to these curves? Yeah. She was like, oh, yeah, but maybe you could give me a button so I can go back and forth.
1: <laughs> and after a time, she stopped the going back disappears, and forth. And then also-
0: yeah, and so, so for me, that was a really good, Learning experience in this process of slowly gaining trust, um, and I think it's also an opportunity for us to educate the people we work with mm-hmm. about, like, well, I was thinking of making this change because of these studies that have shown, you know, whatever. And in general, I think you know, scientists, again, if you have good collaborators, they're going to be open mm-hmm. to those those kinds of things.
2: Yeah, I think you're raising a really good point, and it's uh, my my experience is very similar. And I think it just doesn't work if you go there and say, whatever you've done so far, it's just plain it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you come with this huge <laughs> new block of knowledge. And and I, I think what I've learned throughout the years is also to respect more uh, some practices that, practices that have been established over many, many years. Because, I mean, my, my, my feeling is that, I mean, most of... Probably these scientists are really clever people. If they are using something for many years, there must be some some something good going on there as well. Yeah. So it depends. It depends. It depends. depends. There's really both. It depends. Of Of course, this is not always true. But I think uh, I learned to be a little bit more careful in criticizing everything. And uh, I think in visualization, as well as in many other fields, we have our own dogma, right? And we believe a lot of things and they're not always questioned. So I think it's important to remain open all the time. That's true. No, absolutely.
0: And I think this, this gets back even to your comment about the necessary sort of interpersonal skills for doing this kind of work. Oh, yeah. This recognition yeah. that you're a team, you know, and sure, we each have our own expertise, but we can't completely ignore what the other people on the team are, 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 you know, what they feel strongly about.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. And that they also operate in a certain context. Like, like mm-hmm. we yeah, exactly. are sort of, with, you know, we're of independent of, we yeah, can exactly. say like, yeah, we should use, I don't know, circles. But um, <laughs> but they, they operate in a different context. That's, super yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely true. Yeah. But Enrico, I think there's also a few scientific like cliches in visualization, like in specific sciences that are just plain wrong. They're just inefficient. They could be much better. And just people don't realize it because they've they never made that switch to, to a new form of visualization. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I also I also think that um, I don't know. This could be my just limited foresight because I've only been doing this for X number of years. But the data is just getting more and more complex, and so there could have been these visual conventions that worked back when, you know, it took ten years to sequence a single genome. But now that you can do it in whatever yeah. less than a day, suddenly you're confronted with a scale and complexity of data that they didn't have before, and so. Um, you know, it could be that people are starting to come up against this and there's there's just a need to revisit those conventions and to think more broadly about how to change them.
2: Yeah. And I have to say another thing in my experience is that people, if if the people you are collaborating with never get excited about what you are doing, it's a, it's a big alarm because visualization <laughs> has this big power of this huge wow effect, right? And if you don't get to that um at least at some point i think that's that, that's, something wrong is, as well. that's a yeah. sign that something is going wrong and i had this thing myself a few years back and i and i realized that something was going wrong and it was going wrong so i mean <laughs> i think this is pretty pretty a uh, pretty unique feature of visualization that when it works people are really like mm-hmm. they love it right they they, they, they want to hug you <laughs> so if this doesn't <laughs> end, it, even do yeah it's
0: exactly. great to be the hero in every project yeah, yeah, right?
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're so, right Marai- if if, oh. if you're working together for half a year and it never comes and, up. Yeah, like and you never learn something that. new out of yeah. your visualization. You're absolutely right, Enrico. Then something's wrong. And then we need to be honest as well and say, like, oh, probably our approach didn't work here or at least ask, like, what's the problem? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and Maria, regarding the iterative process that you have in, in between, in the middle, um, I'm curious to hear from you what's your take on prototyping? How does prototyping work? there, whether we have good um, methods and tools for prototyping. Because I'll tell you how it happens in my lab. My students are just amazing programmers, and, and they are able to come up with amazing stuff in 24 hours. But we cannot pretend everyone to be like that. I am not like that, right? So um, um, what do you think about that?
0: Gosh, it's almost like I would have given you these questions to ask me. <laughs> I do a lot of paper sketching, for instance. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in 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 my group, we we talk a lot about this idea of rapid iterative prototyping. You know, this is one of those things that we believe very deeply is incredibly important. Um, And yet, I think that in general, you know, things go great until all of a sudden you have data. And then it's just (laughs) like, well, great, you know, I I can sketch on paper, I can do all kinds of stuff. But now I have this data. And, you know, I think we also, there's also, I think, uh, understanding that when you prototype, you need to prototype with the real data, because oftentimes, if you don't, it breaks your, your whatever it is you've created the first time you look at it. So um, this is one of the things that I actually have a project um, that's in collaboration with uh, some folks at Microsoft Research. We've been very curious about this, um, and so we actually did some work where we we were trying to understand how designers worked with data. You know, here's a group of people that basically, you know, their bread and butter is is prototyping, and and, um, and so um, my colleague Danielle Fisher and I started having these conversations conversations with each other about, wow, like how come. You know, how do designers do this? And, and we had this hunch that they weren't using a lot of the tools that we as the visualization community were building. Yeah. I'm like, why is that? And then we sort of started to learn that really what they were largely doing is manually encoding data in Illustrator, mm-hmm. yeah. like where they draw axes and tick marks and then draw bars of like an appropriate size. And, and then we were just sort of floored. Like, what would make people do this? Um, so, like an animal. <laughs> it was just unfathomable to us. Um, anyway, so we, we tried to recognize that, you know, there may be something here we're not quite understanding. And so we we um, did a series of um, interviews with some design professionals that we knew. We also did some um, some. Uh, to, to well, we did some interviews to try to find out what was their process. How did they work with data? How did data change things or not? We also uh, conducted some controlled studies where we brought design students into the lab. We gave them a data set that we had, say, spiked with some outliers, and like you know, some task about creating an infographic, and then we just observed how they what they did. Um, and then we also did some observation of a hackathon that involved designers. And from all this, we, you know, we we were able to come up with a, you know, a series of patterns that we saw things of, of how these designers were working. And some of the things that were really interesting to us, one was that yeah, this manual encoding is super common, but it's not necessarily always a bad thing. So the manual encoding was often the the point where the designers would get into their data. That was sort of their data exploration phase. Um, and um, we also saw a lot of times that people did in fact use tools like Excel or Tableau. Um, or even writing simple processing scripts, but every single time they used an external tool, they always brought the final design. They're, they're, they always brought their visualization into Illustrator to do their final design refinements. And the thing that was most poignant to us from all of this was was the fact that once they brought things into Illustrator or even manually encoded data, there was no going back. Like they were not able to accommodate data changes, yeah. or even being able to say, "Oh, hey, you know, I'm." Looking at this as a node link diagram, why don't I try an adjacency matrix? These kinds of changes were incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, and so this got us really interested in this problem of how do we create, you know, a more flexible ecosystem of, of tools, and um, that's currently one of my
1: students' dissertation projects. Mm-hmm. That's study. a really hot topic. Like how to yeah. have tools that allow this fluid parallel exploration of data and concept spaces and shapes and, you know, encodings and layouts and so on. Yeah.
0: Right. What do you think of Lyra?
1: Have you played with Lyra?
0: um, A little bit. I've played with it a little bit. And I think um, it does some things really, really well. You know, it tries to make this process of um, building up data or building up a visualization based upon data, very efficient. And there's a lot of flexibility there. Um, but we saw that there's there's still a lot of um, a lot of the designers we talked to and a lot of the infographics we looked at, people are wanting to do some pretty unique stuff. And one of the things we heard from our designers, reason that they didn't like the, the sorts of tools we've created for them, we the sort of engineering community, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that they didn't want their stuff to look like the next person's. Right. you know they want their their visualizations to be unique and, and that's why they really like Illustrator for its richness there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the philosophy that, that we've basically been working under and are exploring right now is this idea that, you know, there's been a lot of work and effort and deep thought that's gone into a tool like Illustrator and a tool like Tableau and a tool like Lyra. Um, wh- building a monolithic tool that's going to r- replace everything seems kind of silly. And it's, it's certainly my student will not finish it in his dissertation. So instead, we've been thinking about this idea of how do we bridge between all these different tools that exist, what are the things that you need to do and keep track of and take care of in order to support iteration between um, the tools that exist out there. So that's what we're working on right now.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think there is an interesting ecology of tools out there, but still it's not clear how to move from one to another. Yes, and, I agree. And um, I'm really curious to see what is gonna happen in the next few years in this space because there is still a lot to do. There are some amazing yep. tools out there, but I I also believe there is a, there is space for some 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 other tools. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and the whole question of how this... we use the tools is actually much more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This yeah. is exactly yeah, where yeah, of you, course.
1: you know your work fits in, like how are the workflows like. What should we start with? Like, which questions do you want to get answered when and which can be postponed to a later stage? And how do you resolve blocks in a, in a project workflow and these types of things? That's I think that's super fascinating. It is not investigated much. And the, the paper, I found it really, the um, reflections on how designers design with data, I found it really <laughs> nice to read and also very entertaining because it's a bit like somebody... Like observes this uh, alien uh, race, <laughs>
2: what <laughs> they do, you animal. know.
1: So ah, now they they encountered some data. Like, how do they react to it? That, that was very, very fun to read, actually, <laughs> from So, so is
0: there anything in there that that you felt we didn't quite get right?
1: No, I I I, I share the the observations, um, and I think this you described the the bridge, like the gap that needs to be bridged, quite well. I think that there is some some really nice. Um, very manual, procedural practice in design, but how to connect that to active data exploration is is the big problem at the moment. And some right. people are just personally better at that and, than others, but the there is still a big gap in general yeah, from both ends. Yeah, yeah.
0: right. And I, think, and, and I think this gets back to what we were talking about earlier too, Enrica, when you brought up this you know, are we going to put ourselves out of a job one day? But I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's this even this middle step, you know, the prototyping that we all struggle with, you know, sketching with data. And I think, you know, once we do explore the space and get better tools in place, it's going to open this up to a lot more people. Um, I, I don't think this necessarily means that every biologist and every physicist and every geographer is going to have the the knowledge, or the desire, or the time to learn what they need to learn about how to visually represent things. Yeah. But yeah. I think it will there will be a broader class of people, designers, journalists, um, uh, you know, data scientists who will have access to creating these kinds of things without having to learn how to program D three.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's very much needed. And um, yeah, I was briefly com- we we me and Moritz were briefly commenting that before the interview that it's surprising nobody did that before some some study like yours on understanding how designers do what they do and it's surprising when you look around to see how 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 many things we don't understand very well yet i mean even um yeah last week or two weeks ago when i was in israel i was uh, in my talk, I introduced. Uh, I had one slide saying, "We don't really know exactly how people read this stuff once it's published on the web, right? <laughs> we don't even know whether people do read them or not, right? <laughs> and and that's that's pretty crazy."
0: <laughs> yeah, I, <don't> <laughs> I mean, too often, I, And I and that was feedback I always got from these. These scientific tools I created too, where people are always like surprised, like, "Oh, your collaborators are using these in their lab," and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. but, "But of course, like, what? <laughs> what other measure of success would you have?" But you know, unfortunately, too, I think at least within <laughs> the academic world, the the um, the way it's set up doesn't necessarily encourage us to do this longitudinal type of follow up work. You know, oh, like,
2: yeah, absolutely, yeah, and, and that's it's, a huge it's a problem a for me, yeah yeah because we don't have the right incentives to do that right, right. so I, I i love to do this kind of work but after some some time it's just no longer worth it <laughs> at least for my career so i right. have to sacrifice something else in order to 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 go deeper into this direction and i think it's not it's, it's not okay. easy <laughs> and um i think Tamara did uh, something recently. I don't know if you were involved in that on a very long-term kind of uh, adoption study. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. I'm talking I, about
2: Tamara Mansner.
0: Right, We no, had was not on the about show. That one.
2: Yeah. But it's very hard. So I'm wondering if you have any experience with uh, observing, let's say adoption and the use of any of your tools or other tools on an extended uh, time period, because that's very hard.
0: Yeah, so, um, right, like you, I wish this was something I could say. Oh, yeah, I have lots of experience (laughs) in this. Um, I do have one project right now where um, we are planning a series of more longitudinal types of things to do. And, you know, it's been a bit interesting for me in figuring out, like, well, where would we, say, publish that? Or what's the community we, we would target? And in some ways, we're targeting the domain a little bit more. Um, but, uh, it's just such an interesting project that we're all willing to do this and keep going. And you know what, like if it doesn't count as a quote unquote computer science publication, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Of course. Yeah.
0: But yeah, no, I think, I think I don't have a lot of experience. Um, and it's something that, that I do regret and I wish I
2: did. Yeah. But it's hard.
1: <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> There's one project I want to learn more about. You you briefly told us about uh, that you're working uh, with poets in a new project. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit? I
2: know it's a preliminary, one. that that sounds so intriguing. So we want to learn. Yeah,
0: that's actually that's the project that we're going to do some longitudinal work Ah, on. uh Um,
2: Yeah.
0: So this is this is my one of my most interesting projects right now. And so this is working with some local poets who got very interested a couple of years ago um, in the idea of how technology can influence their experience as poetry scholars um, and and poets. Um, And uh, it was actually they they first worked with uh, Min Chen. Who's now at mm-hmm. Oxford? He was Come the one Oxford. that did the hard. He was the one that did the hard work of convincing them that they should care about technology <laughs> because they're like, <laughs> I don't want anything to get between me and my poem on a piece of paper. Right. Um, and in fact, this is one of the things that's so interesting about this project is the fact that these poets and their larger community um, are openly resistant to technology, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. One of the things, you know, so one of the things we, we've had to figure out, you know, they say over and over, oh, we don't want a computer to solve the poem. That's what we do. Like mm-hmm. that's the fun part. Like right. that's not what we want to do. So we've had to really grapple with this idea of, well, what is it that a computer then does? What does a visualization do? And we've, I'm becoming more and more aware that it's it's about spurring ideas and and this notion of of, of creativity. That it's there to augment what they do, but not replace what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this has been, I, gosh, I guess we're we're over two years now in this collaboration. We probably spent the first year and a half figuring out, well, what is it we're even going to <laughs> datafy in a poem, right? But, you know, it was like this, it, we had to find the intersection of interesting and computable. Yeah, um, They used to always say things like, <laughs> like, oh, we want you to detect metaphor and show it to us. And I was like... Wow, if you could detect metaphor, I think you'd wear in a Turing prize. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: so, I think it's a really hard problem and we're not going to tackle that. Um, but we finally we finally figured out that sound was very very interesting to these ah, poets. Interesting. Oh, um, nice. And sound with some caveats is very computable. Sure. Um, so uh I have a a PhD student Nina McCurdy working on this and she's just done an amazing job of collaborating with these poets and really understanding their sensibility and trying to really figure out like what is what about sound is interesting? Um, uh, uh, how do we give that to them in a way that's not overwhelming? Um, and so, uh, we've had a, a couple, a couple of papers now, um, one coming out and one under review on this. And it's just so interesting because, you know, we struggle with a lot of things that, um, I wasn't prepared to struggle with things that, that, are kind of opposite from working with scientists so for example anytime we say the word uncertainty or ambiguity to these poets they get so excited
1: <laughs> whereas
0: i feel like with, with scientists like uncertainty basically is just something that gets in the way of them finding the answers to their questions it right. makes it more confusing yeah. but for these poets they're just like <gasps> ambiguity oh that's oh, the best it's, it's <laughs> Perfect. So we've had to like learn to embrace some of these things that i feel like i've been trained not to embrace. Yeah. Um, but then also evaluation has been really really challenging mm-hmm. um, because e- these poets anything we give them they're just a they're so excited about and b it just leads to insights and so um, insights are abundant and so that's not really useful either and so we're we're really trying to figure out how do we how do we measure our success with this project how can we figure out which direction to go next how do I mean we at the end of the day if
1: they this? write better poems that's the the metric, right? It's like, but how well, do you? So, how, do you, yeah, how do you measure
2: that? <laughs>
0: yeah, well, exactly. And 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 it turns out that there they are actually using our tool to either refine or to write new poems, which was not something we actually expected them to do. We were thinking, oh, we're going to show them sound, and they're going to like analyze how sound evolves throughout the poem. But no, like some of them are using it to create new poems. Mm. And so um, right now, what we're, we're thinking about are a series of experiments that we can do to try to get at this notion of creativity and how these poets are using the tool and what it means for the potential role of technology within poetry so just to be clear do you
1: sonify the things they write or is it what's the data what's the data
0: (laughs) Um, basically you can load in it's a text file
1: yeah and then you make a sonification of that text file and that helps them spot patterns in the text they hadn't seen before Exactly. Ah,
0: yeah. Nice. Specifically, we um, detect rhyme. It turns out rhyme is incredibly broad and fuzzy. Like, there is yeah. no definition of rhyme. Right. Um, and so, one of the things we did is we developed a uh, formal language to describe rhyme in many, many forms so that uh, once you describe a rhyming pattern, you can then find it and then let them um, explore mm-hmm. intersections of patterns and things. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. We'll see if we have it a. Sounds paper.
1: good. You should put that online somewhere so you can experiment yourself and <laughs> <Yeah>. see how <laughs> your latest tweets. As soon sound as it's no like longer like under review, yeah. we'll, we will release. It. <laughs> it. Sounds really good. Do you also play with the rhythm of language? Like, yeah.
0: Um, we don't right now, but that's something that uh, my my student who's working on this. She's very interested in hip hop, and so she's been really interested in that as well. Um, but we haven't yet explored how to
1: integrate that mm-hmm. yet.
0: But mm-hmm. I think it would be very interesting. Oh.
1: We need so to do a what follow-up is the, podcast oh, clearly in a year when, when yeah. the hip-hop machine is out. that's just perfect. <laughs> yes.
2: You Sorry, know, we always get a lot of criticism because in a podcast you cannot you cannot really do a podcast all about visualization, right? But so. in sonification <laughs> that might be sounds doable. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. sounds doable. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, what is the visualization part in the in the in this project? What do you visualize exactly?
0: Yeah, I have to say the actual visualization itself is the least interesting part of this
2: project. <laughs> okay. yeah.
0: um, uh, you know, but, but, but I will say, I feel like this process that we as visualization designers go through um, is what we've been doing, the, this idea of a design study, of spending a lot of time talking to our collaborators, trying to figure out how they view the world and what's interesting to them. Um, and then in this case, you know, once we could figure out what, the data meant it took us a long time to develop a system to yeah. pull out the data. Um, but, but the, the visualization problem is that, um, I think it's kind of interesting. They were really adamant about the, the, anything that we show them being in the context of the poem, just because again, this, you know, we're not solving the poem. We're giving them, we're giving we're showing them things to help them better explore, understand or come up with new ideas. And so there's so much going on in a poem that we're not datafying, that we had to show the data in that context, whatever we show. And so we have this notion of poem space. You know, you can think of it as a 2D space, but I think with some interesting things that you always read, well, at least in English, you always read left to right, top to bottom. And that constrains uh, the visualization we came up with somewhat. And so we have a multiple link view system to help them get in and, and see different things. But um, But yeah, so it was really about how do we show these different sets of words and particularly how... Um, some words sort of act as hubs where a lot of different rhyming mm-hmm. sets are coming together, and then things diverge. Sometimes they overlap. Those are the kinds of things that they were really interested in. So it's kind of a set visualization problem, a little bit of a graph visualization problem, a little bit of a two D spatial problem, <laughs> all rolled <laughs> I into one. Very fun. Yeah. <laughs> nice. There's some yeah. ambiguity thrown in there too, of course, just for fun. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Nice. It's the rhymes.
2: Nice. So um, I want to ask you one last thing. Um, you've been mentioning a few times data science and uh, I'm curious to hear from you because there are quite a few data scientists listening to, to the show. What What's your take on the role? What's the role of visualization in data science?
0: Super important. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, super important, of course, but. But why? Um, yeah,
0: because yeah, I, 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 I feel like, I, I feel like in many problems that, you know, where where people are looking at data to get insight or any of these sorts of things, that if we knew exactly the question to ask and we had all the necessary data, we would just write an algorithm to do it. Yeah. But I feel like that's, that's rarely, if ever, where we're at. And I feel like that's, you know, that's why data science has become such a big deal, is you need people that can go in and explore and know how to statistically ask questions um, and provide, you know, variations on, on, on results and things like that. And I think this is exactly where visualization is so important. Um, and I don't think it's it's at the expense of statistics but I think it's along with. And this idea that if you don't exactly know what you're looking for um, that this is where visual exploration is just so important um, and yeah so, so I just feel like you, it, it's hard to do data science without it.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure that's the public image that people have of data science, <laughs> because I think most people equate data science to machine learning and, uh, with the problem of building predictive models,
0: you know, and, um, but, e- you, know, you know, even these, these biologists, you know, that I would work with, they would, they would oftentimes just complain about these black boxes that the, more computational people in their in their labs would you know give them and they'd say oh I put my data into this one black box and I get this answer and I put it into a different black box and I get a different answer and I yeah. don't know what that means <laughs> and so and so I think that it's not that we shouldn't have these algorithms but this idea of how can we open that up somewhat you know how do how do we help people better understand so that they can interpret these results um, but I think there's also you know in talking with our machine learning faculty and stuff here too there, there's so much space. For humans in the loop as well, you know, to, to you know, uh, um, active learning types of models where I think visualization is kind of a natural way to give people information to help them make better decisions to help improve the models and so on. So I think there's just so many places where having that visual feedback is, is really useful.
2: Yeah, I
1: agree. I agree. Yeah. And I mean, even if you end up with a really nice black box, I mean, somehow you need to get to constructing that box. And, you know, like <laughs> for any predictive model, there's a long process of actually figuring out what is predictable in this context and, right. uh, and how, yeah, 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 you know, absolutely. it's like this. And what is and the right Sometimes data you don't see that in, leading up yeah. to that black box that is later deployed successfully. Yep. Yeah.
0: And then there's always the classic, you know, I think everyone. Everyone who's done visualization design has an experience where, you know, someone loads in their data into a visualis- visualization tool for the first time, and, and what do they see? They see errors in their data, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, so, like, even just from that low-level, like, spot-checking, visualization's really good at showing you the things you weren't expecting to see.
1: The ugly truth. <laughs> yeah, the ugly yeah. truth, exactly. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and I think one interesting space where I see a lot of value in visualization is understanding what you actually feed your algorithm with, because that's a huge problem in data science. Understanding what, what do you exactly give as an input and whether it's valuable and whether it has a signal of some sort, it's really, really hard. <laughs>
0: Hey, Enrico! I think there's some kids. Going yeah, it's down my
1: there.
2: son. <laughs> <laughs> your, your boss is calling.
1: Yeah, that's my
2: son. Yeah. I, just got I this cannot great open the door; book. otherwise, it's going to be even worse than that.
0: <laughs> I just got this great kids' book called "The Boss Baby." <laughs> yeah. you, should, you should look into it. Yeah, I need
2: three of those. <laughs> is it only one volume, or the old encyclopedia? Unfortunately, it's
0: just one volume. <laughs>
2: You could write the the, the
1: I could for write it. one. Yeah. <laughs> the Bible. Very the good. Bible. No. But yeah. I mean, it's good, we all agree. Data visual scientists like breaking news, data visual scientists agree that data science is obsolete, so that's fine. can <laughs> close that. Case closed. Yeah. No, but it's it's been super great talking to you, Mariah. That was super oh, fascinating, guys.
0: It's been super fun.
1: And
2: keep us updated on the poetry thing. I'm I'm really. Oh yeah, in we want to see the poetry stuff. Yeah. absolutely. Okay,
0: yeah. I'll send it to you as soon as we have something to send so, you. So
2: cool. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Awesome, thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Bye,
2: bye, Mariah. Bye, bye,
0: bye.
2: Data stories is supported by Tableau Software, helping people see and understand their data. Get answers from interactive dashboards wherever you go. For your free trial, visit Tableau software at tableau.com slash datastories. This is T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot datastories.